Father, we come into your presence, Lord, and Father, I thank you so much that we can just get right back on to on track, Father, when there's distractions and things that take place in our lives, especially on a day like today where we're coming just to meditate, just to hear your word. And then distractions can come. They can come when we're at home. They can come with our kids. They can come with other people in our family. They can come with people on the freeway, on the street. And just when we get here, Lord, we know that Satan, Father, was allowed into your throne room. And Lord, you would tell him, consider, have you considered our servant? And sometimes, Lord, that comes to us. And Father, our faith is tested through these things when we're attacked. And so, Lord, we just pray that your word would go forward in power and in truth and that there'd be no distractions as we leave them here at your feet. So, Lord, prepare our minds and prepare our hearts. And we thank you. We praise you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans chapter 3. We're picking up the argument here at verse 5. We're going to go through verse 8. And I've titled the message today, Wasted privilege, because they were wasting their privilege, and we can waste our privileges that we have. So the Apostle Paul has been dealing with God's righteous judgment against false securities. They were false ideas, they were false concepts, they were false rituals that they had that made them feel righteous. They made them feel like they were right with God, and Paul is trying to strip those down. And the Lord is so good here. The Lord is so good because He sets up for us an entire nation right before our very eyes to show us not to place our trust in anything else but Jesus. That's what the Apostle Paul writing this does, filled with the Holy Spirit to write these words to us, even to us today. A whole nation put on trial so that we can examine our own hearts even today. All those years ago. Because you and I today, as we already shared, can put our trust in false things, giving us a false sense of security. We base a lot of times on what our securities are on things that we see, things that we become comfortable with, things that we do. In Luke 14.33 it says, So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has, Jesus said, can, cannot be my disciple. Did you hear that? Whatever of you, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has, cannot be my disciple. What does that include? That includes everything, even our securities. It is Ryle, J.C. Ryle, who asked the question, Is Christ our all in all? And he writes this, Beware of allowing yourself to mingle anything of your own with Christ. Have you faith? It is a priceless blessing. Happy indeed are they who are willing and ready to trust Jesus. But take heed you do not make a Christ of your faith. Rest not on your own faith, but on Christ. You see that? We can even have our own faith become our Christ. You and I can get into habits that when not performed, they make us feel guilty. 
For example, think about those of you who have a devotional time, and we all should. And we're consistent many times, but man, miss a day? Doesn't that guilt just come on? And why is that? Because do we feel less holy? Is the Lord not with us still? No. But we want to make sure we're spending those times. But if we feel guilty because we missed a day, maybe that has become our Christ. Maybe that has become a comfort that we've gotten used to. Now, I'm not saying you, you, you should get in the habit of not doing that. Of course not. But if it has become a Christ, then, it's, then you're not following the Lord. See, very often we rely on outward blessings to confirm our walk with Christ. Oh, the Lord blessed me in this area. Oh, the Lord blessed me in this area. I must be doing something right in my life. Is that always the case? No, the Bible tells us that. Bad things happen to both the righteous and the unrighteous. That's what happens in this world. So we have to be careful what we're looking at because these can become false securities. And when they are stripped away, if they are our Christ, they will challenge our faith. And we'll become, sometimes we'll become defeated. And we think, oh, where's the Lord? But He's always there. He hasn't gone anywhere. We have to be careful not to make a Christ of anything other than Jesus Christ. So when Jesus begins stripping away false securities in our lives, we must surrender them. It's a good thing. So let me ask you a question and think about this. Do you like to admit that you're wrong? Do you like to admit that you're wrong? No, man, nobody likes to admit that they're wrong. Or very few people. Some of you might say, well, I always admit I am wrong. Do you really? I mean, nobody likes to admit they're wrong because then you admit that you failed in some way, that you're a failure. That's what it feels like. And nobody likes to admit that they have believed a lie. Everything that I've ever trusted in is being questioned. That's because we don't like to think that we would fall for anything. We don't like to think that we would be duped. So when we're challenged, we feel attacked. And we go into protect mode, unwilling to listen, unwilling to change. Sometimes to our detriment, we begin to argue. And so we look at the Jew here, as we've been talking about, from the time of their youth, they're taught all these rituals and covenants. These are all these securities that they had. These were the very basis fibers of their lives. Everything they stood on, and now Paul is coming and telling them it's all a sham. Now, think about it. How would, that, how would that make you feel? How would you feel if the Lord might be doing that in your life right now? You would feel duped. You wouldn't want to admit failure, that you fell for some type of lie, that everything you stood upon is false. And so in that way, now we can understand a little what they felt in this argument here that the Apostle Paul is giving to us. Think about your own life for a moment. Is there something that the Lord has stripped away recently? Or is there something He wants to strip away and that you know it, and that you're clinging to it? Is there something you used to have so much confidence in, and is it waning? 
But see, that's a good thing. See, is there something that you're worried about him taking away? Well, maybe it does need to be taken away. Maybe you're standing on a false security. That conviction you feel in your heart, let it get in there in every aspect of your life and say, yes, Lord, I surrender it to you. It could be that Jesus is bringing you back to the basics. Maybe he's concerned that your attention is going to get off of him and he's trying to get your attention back on him. He's jealous for you. He loves you. He wants a relationship with you. Look back to him because we drift at times in our lives. And if we start to drift from the word, then we will also start to doubt the word. And before long, we will get dull toward the word and become lazy believers. And the best way to keep from drifting is to lay hold of that anchor. But it's not an anchor that we think. It's an anchor in the veil, and it pulls us upward. It's different. It doesn't anchor us down. It anchors us up, anchored in heaven. And Jesus is so good. He keeps us. We feel like we've got to do something. You know, he keeps us. John 17, 12, Those whom you, as Jesus is praying to the Lord, those whom you gave me, I have kept. In John 18, 9, again, Jesus is praying, Of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. None. Jesus is the true foundation, the true security, our all in all, and we look to him. He that would prove a skillful archer must not look at the arrow, but at the mark. Are you looking at the arrow? Are you looking at the mark today? we got to look at the mark. It's going to help us keep marching forward. See, Jesus has a way to get us to look back to Him, our mark of salvation, and we must allow Him to have His way with us today, resting only on Him and no false securities. So this gavel of God's righteous judgment was being lowered. The Apostle Paul was trying to get them to plead out of court. All it would take is their lowering of any false security in their life. And are you lowering any false security in your life? That's all it takes. Surrender to the Lord. Now, I don't have an outline today with different points. We're just going to go through verse by verse. And just as a reminder, whenever grace was taught, what did it put on trial? It put on trial everything that they trusted in. And it puts, that, it puts it on trial for us, too, whenever we teach grace. And so these questions that we've been looking at over the last couple of weeks found here were the natural reasoning of those that felt attacked. And do you find yourself being attacked today by the Scriptures? Not by the enemy, but by the Scriptures. Because when you feel yourself being attacked, then sometimes you begin to argue with the Lord even. Well, Lord, you're gracious, you're kind, you'll forgive me. I could do this for a little while. It's not going to hurt anybody. And then it just one thing leads to another. And you begin to make arguments. Here's a good rule of thumb in our lives. A very good way of testing any view 
that you and I hold is to ask this question, is this view humbling to me and glorifying to God? Because if it is, it's probably right. You won't go wrong if whatever view you're holding is glorifying God and humbling man. But if your view seems to glorify you and question God, there's no need to argue or go into details because it's probably wrong. That's a very good universal rule. So we find the Jew many times arguing their points. The first argument had to do with God's attack on the Jew, God's people. The second argument uh, we've already gone through dealt with God's fidelity or his faithfulness or his promises. And the third argument, which we'll deal with today, God's holiness is put on trial, his purity. And these were the same three arguments the Jews and religious elite seem to always make in Acts chapter 21, verses 27 through 28. Paul, as was his common practice, went into the temple, into the synagogues, and would teach, and he would share. And it tells us in these verses, Now when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people, the law, and this place. So they said that he taught against the people, the law, and the temple. And he was always being misunderstood, as we spoke about last week. And Paul, he's no stranger to these arguments. He's been on both sides of these arguments. He used to make these arguments towards anybody who didn't know God, towards anybody who wasn't a Jew, towards any one who converted to Christianity. See, right now he's arguing from the side of grace, but that wasn't always the case. Turn with me for a moment, Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6, or on your phone, however you do it. Acts chapter 6 at verse 8. 8 through 15, and it tells us a story of somebody, of somebody named Stephen. You remember this story? It tells us, And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Then there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Then they secretly induced men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. You see what they're doing? They're inducing people to say these things. And then it tells us, and they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him to seize him and brought him to the council. Then they set up false witnesses who said, this man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the custom which Moses delivered to us. And all who sat in the council, looking steadfastly on him, saw his face as the face of an angel. That's a great last sentence there. But do you see the accusations and then they're bringing lies and false counsel? 
Man, they did that with Jesus. They did that with the Apostle Paul. Later, they would come to stone Stephen. And who was standing right there? Saul, who later became Paul, who was writing at that time from that angle. And now look at his life being changed. He would later die a same type of fate for the sake of Christ. But he was misunderstood. You see, if you misunderstand the heart, you will misunderstand the message. Misunderstand the messenger and you will misunderstand the message. See, Paul was a misunderstood messenger of grace as you flick back to Romans. Acts 21, 37, 38 says, Then as Paul was about to be led into the barracks, he said to the commander, May I speak to you? He replied, Can you speak Greek? Are you not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a rebellion and led the 4,000 assassins out into the wilderness? Who was he talking about? They misunderstood who he was. They had supposed that Paul was this Egyptian insurrectionist who was on the run. Josephus, he wrote about this Egyptian imposter who claimed to be a prophet. He said that this Egyptian had gathered thousands of followers. Luke tells us it's 4,000. In AD 54, came to the Mount of Olives, promising his adherents that the walls of Jerusalem would collapse at his command. But instead, what happened? The Roman army marched on them, killed them, captured some, while everybody else scattered, and the Egyptian escaped. So they thought this was Paul. They were confused. They misunderstood who he was. And so they misunderstood the message that he was bringing because they're thinking he's an insurrectionist. He's trying to lead people out of this nation to fight and to battle. And that's not what he's doing. He's getting people to surrender their lives to Christ. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, he says. So you misunderstand. So misunderstand who Paul is. You'll misunderstand the message that he brought. It's the same with Jesus. Same exact thing. Matthew 16, 13 through 17 says, When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to him, Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. If they thought it was John the Baptist, Elijah, or Jeremiah, where would that lead their minds? Well, Jeremiah pronounced judgment all the time. Every Old Testament prophet. Elijah brought fire. John the Baptist was this weird, crazy guy out by the river. Misunderstand who Jesus is, you will not get the full picture. That's why there's other religions that teach falsely, because they don't understand who Jesus truly is. You have religions that teach that Jesus is the brother of Lucifer, that he's some type of created being, and that's not the case at all. See, if you misunderstand the messenger and who he is, you'll misunderstand the message. And the fact of the matter is, they all misunderstood. 
Why? Because they were not using what was given to them. They mishandled their advantages and ended up trusting in false securities. And that's what we will do if we do not keep the Lord Jesus Christ in mind and Him and Him alone. Nothing else. So we come to these verses here in 5 through 8. Let's read them. Chapter 3 of Romans 5 through 8. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? I speak as a man. Certainly not. For then how will God judge the world? For if the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory, why am I also still judged as a sinner? And why not say, let us do evil that good may come, as we are slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, their condemnation is just. People who speak that way, their condemnation is just. So we've taken a running head start in this argument among the Apostle Paul and this imaginary antagonist as he's writing this letter. And now we come to verses 5 through 8 to wrap up in a sense this first part of chapter 3. This first part of chapter 3. And Paul here will end his argument, having stripped everyone completely bare of all false securities. What a great approach to bringing someone to the bended knee of repentance, which can lead to who? To Christ and salvation. That's his whole point. It has been remarked before that anyone sensitive to the ways of Greek thought recognizes in Paul's writing, in many subtle ways, his Greek outlook, which complements his equally obvious Jewish insights. And so the imaginary debate with this Jewish objector, which is the key to this passage, is typical of some of the writings of popular Stoicism, making an argument. So the thought process of a Jew and a Greek, in other words, is much different than our own, which is why we find all these parentheses in here. And so let's deal with the parentheses that's here, and we'll get that out of the way for a moment. We'll see if we can't bring all the pieces together and make sense out of all this. Because if we read it just for the way it is right now, how many of us read it and we're like, what in the world is he saying? I mean, I know I have. That's why I have to study. So Paul says in the parenthesis here, in this verse, verse 5, he says, I speak as a man. In other words, what he's saying is, I speak from a man's point of view, merely human principles. In other words, I'm going to give you a common and human mind argument that you would probably make against all of these things. And who would know better but him? Because he used to make all these arguments. See, Paul, what you are saying is that our sin enhances God's grace. This is what they're saying. You're saying that our sin enhances God's grace. So, if our sin enhances God's grace, then how would it be right that He judges us? It's not fair. That wouldn't be fair at all. Bishop Mool, he, he called it a black contrast. And here's what he says of this verse. I quote, 
All sin in one respect or another illustrates God's glory, if only as a black contrast. Therefore, in no case would punishment be just, end quote. This is what they were saying. So you ever see a jeweler pull out a ring or a necklace or diamond to display it? How do they usually display it? They place it on black velvet. Why do they do that? Well, it puts what is shiny on display. It's a contrast, a black background contrast. So they are saying that their lives, as a black, dark contrast, enhances God's glory. And if it does that, then it is fair that God judges us for that? I mean, we're glorifying Him even more then. This was the reasoning of the natural mind with a defiled mind. This is what a common man would say. That's why he put that parenthesis in there. In essence, they are arguing sin is a part of the divine plan and man cannot be held accountable. Have you ever heard that argument? I could do whatever I want. God can't judge me. Only God can judge me. And guess what? He's going to grade on a curve. No, he's not going to grade on a curve. So in verse 6, we pick it up and it says... Certainly not, for then how will God judge the world? See, Paul's answer is then, no, again, uh, may genita, remember we talked about that last week. That's what he's saying. May it not be, never, no way, it's impossible. Don't ever make that argument. You can't say that at all. For then how will God judge the world? You see, if the Jew knew anything about God's word, they knew he would judge. They proclaimed judgment on everybody else except themselves. So how could they now make this claim? And why would he be called judge if there was nothing to judge? He's a righteous judge. See, the Jews knew that God would bring judgment. They had thought, again, everyone else was going to be judged, and they were exempt. The major theme of the vast majority of the Old Testament prophets were about judgment. Genesis 18.25, God is called the judge of all the earth. Psalm 56, 50, verse 6, He shall call to the heavens from above and to the earth that He may judge His people. Psalm 58.11, Surely He is God who judges in the earth. Psalm 94.2, Rise up, O judge of the earth, render punishment to the proud. On and on and on and on. So Paul is saying, no way, can't be, impossible. If we know anything about God, we know He will judge and He's a righteous judge. If He condones sin, He would have no basis for any judgment. Therefore, sin would be okay. So we must never think that the more sin we do will glorify His name. We must never think God condones sin. That's what they were coming to. It's contrary to what he's actually saying. And now we pick up verse 7. It says, For if the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory, why am I also still judged as a sinner? This is a brilliant piece of argumentation. Here is where it gets really interesting because they kind of back themselves into a corner here. Remember, they... 
in verse 8, it, it, Paul tells us they're slanderously saying that these are the things that Paul says, but that's not what he says. It's what they say that he says. That's what's happening. So they believed in final judgment and that God would judge the world. And now they're trying to argue, well, no, he's not. So they're backing themselves in a corner. So Paul says very well, don't you see where you've landed yourself? If you're now going to argue that the unrighteousness of man glorifies God, therefore he cannot judge sin and punish anyone, are you now going to continue that, to teach that God will judge all the sin of the Gentiles at the end of the world? You can't continue to teach that then. Now they're stuck. What do they have to argue? Because Paul is saying, in effect, why would they would now show God's righteousness even more than you? Because look at how much more they have sinned. In other words, the Gentiles' lives, according to you, are full of sin, as we saw in chapter 1, 18 through 32. So how can God judge them as you teach when they bring Him more glory? You have just disproved yourself. If you cannot be judged, then neither can the Gentiles. This is where he's headed in his argument. In verse 8, he says, And why not say, let us do evil that good may come, as we are slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, their condemnation is just. Anybody who argues that, their condemnation is just. So, Paul then takes the argument even further. Essentially, what he's telling them is to take that thought out even more. Don't just stop there. Let's carry that thought out even further. So he wrapped it up in verse 7. He moves on to take it further with them and says, in effect, what Paul is saying is that if my sin makes God's glory stand out all the more, then we should just live however we want. Because according to what you're saying, Paul, the more sin I perform the more God's glory is on display. That's what he's saying. This is what he says. Some are slanderously saying that's what I teach. See, the Apostle Paul here is being charged with antinomianism. Antinomianism, lawlessness, a doctrine that says as long as I'm saved, it doesn't matter how I live. And this is what happens every time you teach grace. People begin to say, oh, you're teaching Antinomianism. That's not right. See, Paul, you're teaching lawlessness. This is always the accusation with graces brought forward. And it's the argument that Paul picks up in chapter 5 and chapter 6. He goes into deep detail. And we're going to get a better understanding when we get there. In fact, just to give you a preview, the Apostle Paul says, says this in chapter 6, 1 and 2. He says this, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. No, never. It cannot be. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? There is the other side of it. It comes to full circle at that point. That's why chapter 6 is going to be so good. All these chapters of Romans. It's amazing. It affirms our salvation our assurance in Christ. See, we preach that a man is saved in spite of his works. That does not mean that we teach we should sin more that grace may abound. No, we have to live a holy life. That's what the Bible tells us. See, there's this fear in some pastors 
that if you teach from the pulpit simply grace, that people are going to go wild. Oh, I just need Christ? Okay, cool. Now I have accepted him. Now I can live however I want. But guess what? It's, I don't see that at all. I think that's a sham. Because if you truly know Christ, if you truly love the Lord, if you are a born-again Christian, man, your life's going to reflect it. You're not going to have to try. There will, things, there will be things you have to surrender. Yes, but you will want to. It's going to be tough sometimes because the flesh holds on, but you're going to want to. Shouldn't it be, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. I mean, <laughs> you'll have people then saying things like, you have to demonstrate that you're a Christian by the way that you live. Let me read that again. You have to demonstrate you are a Christian by the way that you live. There are too many you's in there. There are three you's in there. You have to demonstrate you are a Christian by the way you live. Shouldn't it be this? I mean, if we live in that way, you'll have many Christians living a defeated life in Christ because you will feel like you have to do it all. Well, my life, I'm not doing this, so I need to do this. Because when we fall short and we sin, which we will, every Christian does, you'll feel like you failed. You will. I like what Tozer says. He, he writes this, God is very patient with his children and often tolerates them in carnal traits so gross as to shock their fellow Christians. But that is only for a while. As more light comes to our hearts, and especially as we go on to new and advanced spiritual experience, God begins to impose disciplines upon us to purge us from the same faults He tolerated before. What does this show? The sanctification process. The sanctified life. This shows progress, and our lives must show progress through sanctification. If I look the same way as a Christian I did 10 years ago, has there been any progress? We would have to question, does that mean I've lost my salvation? No, not at all. Instead of you have to demonstrate you are a Christian by the way you live, shouldn't it be something like this? If you are born again, your life will reflect it. That's the way I believe it should go. If you are born again, your life will reflect it. It's been said that a good test of our gospel preaching is exposing it to this accusation, antinomianism. We should be called out for it because then we're teaching grace appropriately. Listen to what Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says. If your presentation of the gospel does not expose it to the charge of antinomianism, you are probably not teaching it correctly. Let me explain that, he says. The gospel comes as a free gift of God, irrespective of what man does. Now the comment, now the now the moment you say a thing like that, you're liable to provoke somebody into saying, Well, if that is so, it does not matter what I do. End quote. Of course, as I stated, that argument is put down in chapter six. It can't be that. See, if I'm accused of teaching antinomianism. I just go to chapter 6 and said, how can, I, how can I be accused of that? I'm just teaching biblically. And right now here, the Apostle Paul is just dealing with this part of it. 
He will deal with it later. So you, that's why we can't take one piece and pull it out. You got to look at the whole thing. And so now Paul deals with these three arguments in the first section of chapter 3. So then it would flow something like this as we have read 1 through 8. Paul, you're attacking God's people. You're telling us that we are just as sinful and guilty as every other human being. So what advantages there being a Jew or a person of covenant? And Paul says, you have every advantage. You have the very word of God given to Moses. This is first and foremost. But you choked out God's word. You've smothered it with your rules and regulations. And not only that, there were points in your history that you lost God's word. You would put in charge to preserve it. But there was complacency. So you think just the fact by the fact God gave them to you, that's what saves you. God's having that word does not save you. The one it points to does. I'm not putting you down and saying you are something less. On the contrary, I'm saying you are something more because you have the advantage. And the advantage is not that you are exempt from damnation, but that you have the very word to lead you to it. That's what he's saying. 2 Timothy 3.15, as Paul told Timothy, that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ. And in John 5, 3, 39, as Jesus told the Jews, he said, you search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life, but these are they which testify of me. But you missed me because you read it wrong. You didn't realize who the messenger was. and You got the message wrong. See how important it is. The law of God was given to lead to salvation and provide its intended blessings. And today we have it all. The entire word, its promises, its blessings, a country founded on it. The very existence of the church hinges on this fact. And if a church today is not teaching God's word, rightly dividing it, it's forfeited is its existence. There's no purpose for it. For what activities? It's to teach us about Jesus Christ and our walk of sanctification. To save those who are lost, to teach us who are born again how to walk joyfully in this life. Not how to walk miserably, how to walk joyfully. That's what Romans is about. He goes on, so then Paul, if God's word is not obeyed by some, are you saying God will then be unfaithful to us? Because what if some did not believe? Are you saying we have a lack of faith? And if we have a lack of faith, Paul, will God then be unfaithful to his promises towards us? Is this what you're saying? Because you're saying we are lost. Did not the fact that God chose us as his people entered into covenant with us imply that we should be kept from hell? Paul, you're questioning God's fidelity, His faithfulness. Paul, you're attacking His promises. You're saying He's unfaithful to His word. And remember Paul's response? No, no, no. No, no, no way, Jose, as Nacho would say. That's an impossible accusation. That was just to get everybody to wake up. He's saying that's impossible. Don't ever say that. 
God can't lie. He'll fulfill all of His promises. His promises were conditional. Judgment was promised when there was disobedience. Judgment is promised if we do not accept Christ, but there's a way of escape. But see, you guys didn't take it. And he goes on, and Paul says, if every person in the world took a vote, said God was a liar, God would still be true. Because it doesn't matter what man thinks. And guess what? Even our own David, the hero of our faith, wrote that God was always to be exalted and always to be right. Remember the arguments that we talked about? See, God has not permanently set aside Israel. He will restore Israel. He has to because that is what He promised to do. But it will be future. Here Paul doesn't go into it, but he will in chapters 9, 10, and 11, where we'll look at it deeper. Remember, there will be a day when Israel restored, as Zechariah says to Israel, in Zechariah 12, 10, it says, Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. And how do we know this is going to happen? Salvation of Israel. Because Israel is present in their land and they are intact. It will happen. It will be in future. God has not forgotten them and gave it to the church only. He will come back for them. This is what He's promised. So just a recap. So you're speaking against God's people, Paul. No, I'm not. They have great advantage in God's word that leads to salvation. But then, Paul, God doesn't keep His word if you're saying we're unfaithful. I'm not saying that. You know God keeps His word. Your own hero David declares that God will always be justified no matter if the entire world speaks against Him. Well, now, Paul, you're saying that no matter what I do or how I live, God's word will always be true. His word will always stand. His promises will always be fulfilled. My sin, then, does not void God's promises. So then, there's nothing that I need to do. All my rituals, promises, Covenants do not mean a thing. Therefore, you're saying, Paul, that I can live however I want with no consequence. You're questioning God's holiness, His purity. You're saying that we can live however we want to and still have salvation. Paul, you're teaching lawlessness. And Paul, no way. Impossible. It can never be. You are the one slandering me saying that's what I teach. I only teach that salvation comes through Christ alone and that there's no other requirement. You're the ones who go too far and say that you can live however you want. And by the way, when you make that argument, you declare then that the judgment should not come to the Gentile. But you don't make that argument because you know full well that God will judge. Wow, man, what an amazing argument. Brilliant. And so Paul ends it right here. And what do we see? He has dealt now with the pagan in chapter 1, 18 through 32. He's dealt with the stoic or the moralist, thinking that they could live a good life and still be counted into heaven in chapter 2, 1 through 16. And he has now dealt with the religious person who thinks all their rituals, all those things they grew up with, all their false securities is going to get them to heaven. And he's dealt with them here from 2.17 through these verses. And Paul was not speaking against God. He was proving God's righteous judgment, which is going to lead us to 
verse 21, eventually the atonement. They had all the light. They had all the advantages. And yet, many got it wrong. This is the worst accusation against the Jew, is that they wasted their privileges. They missed Messiah, what God's word led them to. See, Paul said in chapter 229, salvation has to be where? In the heart. Inward. You must be right with God in word. What he did here is took an entire nation of people to prove his point. Isn't that amazing? He took this whole people and he's telling them, look at, I chose them. I gave them all the light. I gave them my word. I gave them my religion. I gave them all the traditions. And guess what? Those all became above me. And they walked away. And what does that demonstrate to us? We could do the same thing today as Christians. We can forget who He is. Our lives, although we are born again, they can get off track. And we won't resemble what a Christian is like. And guess what happens then? Nobody comes to know Christ because we got the messenger wrong. And so what message do we have? We don't have any message. Where's our attention all the time? All the problems in the world. Everything going on in our own personal lives. We get so caught up in it. And that's okay. We do. But sometimes the Lord needs to strip those things. So that we come back to the basics. God is so good to us that He would write this for us. To teach us. To instruct us. I'm so blessed by it. Our message today as Christians is that salvation comes through Christ alone and you must have a relationship with Him. Where? In your own heart. Just because I come today doesn't mean I'm saved. It's in my heart. How many people are sitting in churches or other religions, other places, counting on salvation from something other than Jesus Christ living in their hearts. I would say the vast majority of people. Today, there's nothing more sad than our wasted privileges because in the United States, we have it all. And we have so many freedoms. But we get it so wrong so many times. We have the church. We have places to gather together to sharpen one another, yet... Many don't even come. There's no greater blessing than to stand here after service and watch the fellowship take place. I love it. People standing back there, having coffee, having snacks, just talking, sometimes for an hour or more. And what a blessing. That's what the church exists for. Prayer, encouragement, sharing needs. But our very existence is to share God's Word. Sharing words talking about Christ. Sharing stories talking about Christ. That's what a sermon is. What He has done for us so that we built up in our faith to save us. Yet there are so many that simply sit in the pews and chairs who are lost. Why? Because we won't teach grace. Because we're afraid to. Because we're afraid if we do that people are going to have the freedom in Christ. 
It boggles the mind. We're always talking about God bringing judgment, and we know that to be true, and that's a good teaching. We have to talk about that because He is bringing judgment without Jesus Christ. If you don't have Christ, there will be judgment. There are many even in the church that don't even read God's Word. Many wasted privileges. And if we count on anything other than a personal relationship with Christ, we are lost. What a sad commentary that will be with all the privileges we have today. Father, we thank you so much for this day, for your word, for this time, for working in and through our lives. And go before us now, Lord, in triumph and victory. Help us to walk in triumph and victory. And we praise and we thank you now in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. God bless you.